But coming up with the good idea, do you know what? That's the easy part. Actually, the delivery, the execution, the consultation, the engagement with trade unions, the legal advice, that that's the tough stuff. So I don't think really I deserve that much credit for this at all. I think mm-hmm. it's a such a kind of combination of factors, including the bit from the idea to what you're talking about, the difficult part, which is also actually landing the decision. We have mm-hmm. got the courage to actually press mm-hmm. forward with this. A few updates. We have a few free events coming up where our fellows share their learning, including one on preparing for your children starting school in September and also another one on returning successfully from maternity or shared parental leave for people working in the NHS. To get all the info, you can sign up to leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter or look on the website. I'm also thrilled to say that applications for our NHS Foundation Fellowship have just opened. I'll give you a bit of a flavor of what the last year's fellows said. One of them said, I think the impact has been profound. Without realizing, I find myself having the confidence to engage in discussions and conversations I would have shied away from before. I don't feel afraid to be honest that I'm a mother anymore. Another one said, The impact of the Leaders Plus NHS Foundation Fellowship has been significant and transformative. It has provided me with a unique opportunity to connect with like-minded professionals facing similar challenges as working parents in the healthcare sector. Another one said, by providing practical strategies and support for work-life integration, the program has helped me strike a better balance between my professional and personal responsibilities. One significant impact is that it has enhanced my ability to set boundaries and manage my time effectively. And the, I guess the thing that made me happiest is that two people mentioned the word life-changing in the end of program evaluation, which is really positive, as well as quite a few promotions and some. So anyways, sorry, I'm getting sidetracked because I got really excited about the impact survey. If you want to apply, the deadline is 11th July and we have 40 spaces available. Today, Polly McKenzie and I are putting the words to right about driving change, about powerful policies for working parents and about everything in between. Enjoy the conversation. So I'm Polly McKenzie. I am the, I have a lot of words in my job title, so you get back, get ready for this. The Chief Social Purpose Officer at the University of the Arts London, which is basically the world's largest art and design university also in London obviously it's in the name in my family is me my husband who works much more pot time than me and three kids 11 9 and 6 he's not 6 he's 6 in 14 days but you know he keeps reminding me of that mm, of course so are you are planning or having a big birthday party planned i'm sure in, in i'm being very husband. brave we're having slime oh <laughs> rather you than me well done and I imagine the social purpose officer sounds like a dream job for many people how does one become a chief social purpose officer well at the moment I can only find three chief social purpose officers in the world but there are other jobs that are in a similar vein so there are there are a number of chief purpose officers chief sustainability officers and chief impact officers which is Prince Harry's job title, I think, somewhere or other, but that, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. And essentially, these are all roles that are some form of 
environmental and social governance roles in organizations that are trying to have a much more positive impact on the world around them, whether that is through their operations, through their influence, through the work that they do. And so I came into this role actually partly in order to learn about how you get change in big, complicated organizations. We are quite a big organization, 23,000 students, about 5,000 staff. And my background before this was in policymaking and in government. So I was in government from 2010 to 2015, working as director of policy for the deputy prime minister, Nick Clegg. I left, I founded, helped to found uh, the Women's Equality Party with Catherine Mayer and, and Sandy Toxvig and Sophie Walker. I then went on to found a charity called Money and Mental Health Policy Institute with Martin Lewis, the money saving expert. And then because I founded two things, I thought I would rescue something. So I went to a kind of a think tank, which was originally founded in the 1990s called Demos, which was, and I think this is about the time that we first met, right, Verena? I saved it from a very sticky financial situation, rebuilt reserves, rebuilt the team, kind of refounded the organization really to try and have uh, impact on public policy. And that's the interesting thing, right? Like you do policy, you're always, you're basically trying to make decisions for other people. You're trying to influence. It's campaigning and advocacy and system design, but it's not doing. And I, I figured that in my 40s, I needed to learn about some doing as well as just telling other people what to do. And so that's why I took this much more operational role, trying to, like I say, change the impact of what we do for the better in terms of environmental, social, economic impact. And also just, I think, making the case for the creative arts, for the creative industries, for their role in our kind of cultural life, how vital they are to joy and meaning and purpose in, in our lives. Hmm. Interesting. And we are very originally met because I was setting up an event, CEOs on parental leave or something like that. Yeah. And you agreed, crazily or not, to come along and talk about this. And since then, you've just had the most illustrious career, even after being a CEO of these various organizations. What do you think enables you to have these really big, very strategic, quite scary, quite undefined roles, possibly, alongside of bringing up humans, which I find is lovely, but also can be really draining in energy? It is, it is really tough, isn't it? And, and in a way, I think that the challenges of parenting really help to put perspective on professional challenges. It is so rarely as hard to, to keep your cool, to think strategically, to work as it is at home when you have got children who you love. And that's the problem sometimes because you care too much. And I, I often think that the kind of the key to professional life is I'm stealing this from a book by a guy called Herb Cohen, which is about negotiation strategies. And I saw him speak once. And you know, you know, sometimes you see a speak and you're like, I want to recreate that experience. So I'm buying your book so I can like read it six times. Anyway, what he said is, you've got to really, really care. Yeah, but not that much. And mm -hmm. that's what you can pull off in professional life. And it's so difficult when you're thinking about like discipline or homework or eating dinner. Like, I really wish that I didn't care so deeply about my kids eating dinner. And that it wasn't caught up in feelings and meaning and because I'd be a better parent. So in a way, I think that they feed 
together that ability to really, really care about the work that you do and the impact that you can have. A sense of commitment and ambition and leadership, but also recognizing that you can have a bit of distance for it. You'll be better if you have distance. You'll be better if there's a part of you that cares more about your kids than about whether Fred in accounts does what you told him to do because it's only work. And and I think that's a really vital outlet for dealing with what might be professional anxiety. And when you're a founder or a refounder or a crisis leader, all of that, it requires something which for some reason or other, I find relatively easy, which is acting in the face of uncertainty. One of my big challenges as a leader actually is to recognize that other people don't find that as easy. Mm-hmm. It is, and that that doesn't mean they're worse people than me. They're usually much better at a whole bunch of other stuff at which I'm terrible. But that that sense of we don't know, but we need to do something. So let's get started and have the confidence to adjust later when we know more. I think probably comes from actually spending a decade in politics where the pace is so, so fast to the idea you have to, oh, you've got a week to make a decision. I'm like, a whole week? Whereas other people are like, what do you mean? What do you mean? A week? Huh? So I think it's that. I think partly I just, you know, the that leadership role of making decisions. But you can do that. You can have the confidence to probably get it slightly wrong if you've got that fundamental belief that it doesn't matter how much this matters for the planet or for your employees. or it, It's also not what you want to be remembered for, actually. Mm. It's not the kids who love and need you, even when they're really annoying and they won't eat their peas. on a side note i can highly recommend not having a kitchen which is my current situation i haven't had a kitchen for two weeks it looks like it's gonna be another two weeks and by now i used to care about kids eating veggies and now they just eat ice cream and i've given up on on anything like that my sister was briefly an au pair at like 19 or so and she worked for this german family where if the kids didn't eat their vegetables they would be stirred into their yogurt for pudding. And the really freakish part of the story is that the kids just like went along with it. All right, yeah, broccoli and peas in in blueberry yogurt, fine. And they, so they would eat their vegetables stirred into yogurt. Isn't that, oh, that just, that's feels You have now given me an idea, which is going to have a long term. They had to do something so gross. (laughs) I'm afraid once I have a kitchen, I might even go down that route. Aside from that, it's interesting about this acting within uncertainty. What What is it that gives you that confidence? Is it just that you have complete confidence and you're not someone who doubts a lot? Or is it that you've learned something that you used to not know? Or is it just your character? What is it that allows you to act in that uncertainty? I think a lot of it is probably character or, or personality. And, and you know, I, I absolutely don't want to sort of like boast about that because there's a load of stuff that I'm bad at and I think again finding the right professional fit for yourself is yeah sometimes it's about changing yourself or adapting yourself but it's also about finding the right role and I I remember when I was in my 20s you know when you go for a job you always think when you didn't get it's because you're a failure or you're or you're somehow not good enough and then the more you do hiring the more you in on the other side of the table you realize it's it's about fit so So therefore, the way I can best be of service to the world is by doing the stuff that I'm quite good at and 
and collaborating with others who are good at the other things that an organization needs because it always needs needs different kinds of people like i say there's also that you know there's there's something though so foundational about the intensity of working in well i start i started i did a couple of years as a journalist and then into politics and these are things with like 12 deadlines a day constant activity and i think lots of people who've left politics find a similar thing of there's a niche a niche professional observation but never mind that getting used to an alternative pace is really difficult sometimes like a lifetime of difficult and they never get used to it and i i don't know since i left government in 2015 i just felt like the feedback i have had most was can we please slow down mm. from people and i i have slowed down i've slowed down a lot because the 80-20 rule is if you are confident that with 20% of the work you can get it 80% right and you've been through that experience of constantly doing the, the 20% version and giving yourself mantras, like one of my favourite mantras is, is if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. Better done than perfect. But, you know, those kinds of things. Because that's what you tell yourself because it's the only way you survive. You then, what you forget though is that sometimes it's really good to do the extra bit of work because it can be even better. And though that's where the marginal gains are. That's also where your competitor advantage is. So in in business or in, you know, it actually if you're if you're trying to do a public service job or a, a, a third sector job, you know, you're trying to coach people out of drug addiction or homelessness or dealing with people on probation, trying to help them get jobs. Do you know what? What those people really need is for you to do the extra hard, slow, patient work because they need that last 20%. And, and I think that, you know, there's there's a lot of arrogance in the like, I'll be good enough even if I don't try sort of mentality. And you do the worst version of that is mm. in. I remember once I was at a dinner with Boris Johnson. That sounds more grand. It was like a big one of those big sort of dinners in a Park Lane hotel where there's like 800 people. And he was the after dinner speaker. And I happened to be on the table, not his table, but like the table. I saw, you know, he arrived late, of course, turns up and just jots down some stuff on the back of an envelope and gets up and gives a speech. And he is someone who is like absolutely like worse than me. Trust me. He, like for all of my humility, he's definitely worse. I'm a better person than him. But the reality is he was good. He was good with almost no effort. And I think when people have grown up and, and, and got away with being a bit crap, they have none of the habits of recognizing that sometimes you've just got to do the 80% of the work because the 20% of quality matters. Mm. And, and, and that's, again, that's why I certainly need to work with others. That's why all of us need to work with others who are different, who get their kind of endorphin kicks from different parts of the process, who love getting to operational design, who love getting to continuous improvements and performance management. You know, there are people who are just born to be great at that. And we should celebrate those. I, I don't think our culture is very good. at it. I think we're much better at celebrating the people who are quite good without trying than the people mm. who are diligent and hardworking. Hello, thank you so much for clicking to listen. This is a special message for you if you are working in the UK National Health Service, which I know about 10% of our listeners are. Women hospital doctors earn 18.9% less than their male counterparts in the UK. So that means on the rare occasion where you work a normal working weeks in quotation mark, Monday to Friday, that is as if Friday was a day where you work mostly for free. 
Sadly, the picture does not look much better when you look at the pay gap of nurses, midwives, allied health professionals and so on. And a lot of this is due to parents, especially mums' careers, getting stuck when they have children. And that's why I wanted to very warmly invite you to apply to the Leaders Plus Fellowship Programme. It's all about supporting you to progress their careers, to break those statistics, to change it together and to do that in a really supportive environment, an environment where everyone else has children, everyone else wants to progress their career, but also everyone else wants to create a different future. It's very welcoming, supportive and really helpful to build your courage and confidence. Um, we have part-sponsored places available by the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. Thank you so much. And also we have some hardship fund spaces available, which is fantastic. Um, in order to access all of that, you need to apply by the 11th of July. It is the last intake this year. Um, we accept applicants on a rolling basis. So it's not a bad idea to apply sooner rather than later. You can also arrange a call with me or a member of my team. Um, we'll be more than happy to answer your questions. All the details are on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash NHS fellowship. That's leadersplus.org.uk forward slash NHS fellowship. I would be absolutely thrilled if this year again we have lots of people from the podcast joining us in this um, movement of people who want to create the change together. And I look forward to reading your applications. Mm. that's interesting I read a book by James O'Brien not my usual necessarily type of book but I'm part of this book club so I was forced into it but it was quite interesting because <laughs> he argued that the people who've been to private schools have been forced to fail so many times that they're just totally used to not being perfect and therefore they do and like, I guess this image that you've put in our heads with Boris Jones is exactly that it's like that's so interesting. I, I hadn't I hadn't really associated it with private school. I went to a lot of different schools, but I did I did spend quite a lot of my education in private school. I also think my dad told me, my dad went to Oxford and he had been to a private school. And he told me this in a like self-reflecting, God, I was an awful person at 18 sort of way. But he and the other private school boys had been terribly elitist about the state school boys who were there at his college. It was all boys at that point. And the narrative they had was, these are the ones who had to try to get in here. And I don't know if you remember, there was a thing when David Cameron was, some of his notes were released and he'd criticised somebody, I don't know, for being a girly swat. And that the disdain for people who try hard is a, oh, it's a cultural monstrosity, much worse than not celebrating people who are good at maths, which is, you mm. know, our current prime minister's bugbear not celebrating people who work hard, celebrating those who are effortlessly quite good because they're never effortlessly brilliant. Mm. Another defining moment in my life is, sorry, I often think about this. I had this boyfriend when I was 17. His name was Steve. And he was amazingly good at the piano, having never taken a lesson. And I remember saying to him, why don't you take lessons? Because you could be extraordinary. And he was like, uh, no, I like he didn't want to run the risk. He wanted to retain that the idea that if I worked hard, I'd be a world leading pianist, much safer to stay in without trying. Do you see mm. what I mean? And I, mm -hmm. I really, really that I, I think about him and that 
all the time to motivate myself to be a complete finisher when I'm feeling lazy. <laughs> so with Legion Plus, you might have picked up because you said that you sometimes see stuff on social media. Sorry about that, that I post. Now we have quite a few people in our network who are trying to drive organizational change and especially change with HR and policies and so on. I think sometimes they get frustrated at the pace of it. Yeah. When they're trying to implement the policy, it's all like, oh, well, actually, we haven't considered how this might affect, should we include people who have disabilities and, and are we potentially discriminating against this additional group, et cetera, et cetera. So it becomes extremely complicated and therefore nothing happens. That's my interpretation. And sorry if I'm offending anybody listening. But I'm interested because you were involved in this policy recently about having non-gender specific parental leave policies, is that right? Or is it just yes. that you posted? Yeah, you were. Yes. I'm and that's very quite proud. a rat you are very proud. Excellent. So sorry, I give you full credit. You were not just supposed no, to be no, 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 no. Like it, 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 it's one of those things where I mean I did suggest it. But coming up with the good idea, do you know what? That's the easy part. Actually, the delivery, the execution, the consultation, the engagement with trade unions, the legal advice that that's the tough stuff. So I don't think really I deserve that much credit for this at all. I think it's a such a kind of combination of factors, including the bit from the idea to what you're talking about, the difficult part, which is also actually landing the decision. We have mm. got the courage to actually press mm. forward with this. And again, I'm mounting a stereotype here, which is that universities are one of the probably your university is not is probably not fitting into that stereotype, but they are extremely complex organizations, often with slowish change. So how did you not get stuck with that? And how did you do a policy that, I'm sure it's a good policy, but probably could have been even better, possibly with even more consultation? I don't know. I would say a few things. The first is I didn't actually work at UL at the time. And that made it, again, much easier. I was asked what I thought we should do in the sort of couple of weeks before we joined. I joined. <laughs> and so basically our vice chancellor, James Pinnell, former culture, media and sport, Secretary of State under the Labour government, former Department for Work and Pensions, Secretary of State, former, I think, Director of Radio or something at, at the BBC. So like a really interesting kind of ambitious sort of political in both the big P and little P kind of way, but, but very much kind of nonpartisan at the moment. He's just really ambitious for what his leadership will bring to UAL. And you need a great CEO, had been a CEO of small organisations and again, wanted to take this role to be learning about big complicated organizations because someday I'd like to be the CEO of an organization I'm not currently in that role and and the reality is that single point of leadership is essential it's not sufficient but without it in the end you can be agitating and fighting and you know all of that for years what you need is a great leader which is frustrating because it's very hard for people elsewhere in the hierarchical systems we create to actually secure that change. But you can make the case and you can find ways, again, to, to work with peer organisations to, to try and kind of put some of that kind of horizontal pressure on, on, on leaders mm. to look good, um, to be good. The policy which we adopted, which is, is six months at full pay for any new parent regardless of sex and gender, but also of whether they are an adoptive parent or they're using surrogacy or, you know, any of the different mechanisms by which by which people come become a parent, which is really important to me. And it's something that I, I get, wrote policy papers around. 
I had introduced at Demos. I had introduced at Money and Mental Health Policy Institute, slightly less generous because, you know, very small third sector organisations. But nevertheless, the the concept of parity, because I, I fundamentally believe that we cannot have equality at work until we have equality at home. And that is about sharing the burden and the joys of early childhood parenting. So some people sort of love mothers and think that there's a sort of biological imperative, it should be the mother at home. That's a reasonable position. I just happen to disagree with it. In obviously very early post-birth periods, it absolutely, later on in a child's kind of babyhood, that opportunity to bond deeply with a second parent as sole carer is so, God, it's so powerful. And it just sets a lifetime of, of, of change. We had been under pressure at UAL, again, not whilst I was here, but from the unions, because our previous policy was rubbish. It was basically just statutory pay. And the unions, full credit to them, had made the case year after year, you should stop being rubbish on this. And James wanted to do something. All I contributed was, he said, what should we do? I said, well, let's do this really ambitious kind of sector leading thing. And the thing that made it possible is that other people had gone before. And that's so important, I think, for it's not enough to just be good for yourself. You have to pay it forward. And, you know, Aviva helped us because they were interested in helping other organizations to match them and that's and I think in the commercial world people often think well no we're trying to do this to have competitive advantage so that we want to be sector leading to attract staff and that's actually not sector leading you're not leading anyone you're just being good mm. I'm much more interested in sector leading I would like other people to follow us and so that requires and it doesn't matter what an organization is doing well this is something that I'm proud of this plenty of other stuff I'd like us to improve on. But, you know, there are other, I saw that the Future Generations Commissioner in Wales has introduced a policy whereby any of their staff who are fleeing domestic violence can access an emergency cash grant and an emergency loan. Thankfully, that's a relatively niche policy. You might introduce it and not have anyone claim on that for years and years and years. And and thank goodness. But nevertheless, that that's a really interesting, ambitious way to intervene in a kind of the social life of the people who matter to you in your organization we haven't done that I'm interested to learn from their experience and help to kind of propagate that sort of sharing so that we drag each other upwards I would like this stuff to become like a hygiene factor where you just can't be shit completely Um, instead of something where a few organizations are being good but everyone else is sort of bumbling along at the bottom Mm, I completely agree and for my own interest, I've got a side project. I want to create a list of all the organizations that do awesome stuff. And obviously, oh, your, your, as in like awesome policies, exactly with the yes. purpose of creating a bit of pressure. Yes. So it won't be a fancy thing, but I just want a list. So if anyone listening is knows of an organization that does exceptional stuff, I want to know about it and email me on vidina at leadersplus.org.uk. Sorry about this little ad, uh, Polly. But uh, <laughs> I was surprised. Well, I thought you were going to tell me that you're brilliant at change management, which I think you you probably are anyway. So you must be, otherwise you wouldn't have this job. But you told me that actually the big point was that you found someone or you connected with someone, in this case, your CEO, who shared your vision. It sounds great, but I'm just thinking, how can we replicate that magic of you somehow connected with the CEO and maybe some other people to create a really amazing policy 
what do we need to do to have more of that sort of thing happening? Because we, we can't replicate you and your CEO, but what is it in the system that we need? I think it's about changing expectations of what's normal. And it's change curves always involve early adopters. And that slowly, slowly builds critical mass. And you will get, whether it's somebody who's been in the people function at UAL, who thinks this is a great thing, who then, whatever, moves to UCL next door and, and starts to make the case. Or maybe it's maybe it's at that leadership level, governance level. So, and that means that there's an imperative when you've, when you've done something awesome and you want to pay it forward, is to absolutely shout about it. Because you know, sometimes we're a bit reticent. We don't want to be too smug or boastful about the good things that we've done. But actually, what you're, you're helping other people to advocate because they can say, well, look at what these guys are doing. The thing about CEOs is a bit like prime ministers. They have a tendency to be like relatively narcissistic. And I say that as somebody for whom narcissism is absolutely like one of my core personality deficits. And so they want to look good in front of their peers. They want to have done something that no one else has done. They want to be able to boast when they're going for their next job about like the three exciting things they did. They like pioneering. It's a personality trait that is associated with the kind of people who get to be CEOs. Now, we might sort of complain about that as an entire mechanism of organizing society, but it's the way we organize society at the moment, rightly or wrongly. And so I honestly think that you can play on that. Like they're, they're all hyper competitive, even, you know, the university sector, which is not for profit. People really care about league tables. And then I think that then kind of third space type organizations, whether it is sector bodies, whether it is campaign organizations, ginger groups, they can help with that mechanism. They can help elevate other good examples to the visibility they can and they can do the sharing of good practice because again change require you have to make change cool but you also have to make it easy because if you look down the barrel of equal parental leave and it feels like not just x million pounds but also like nine months of consultation and a whole bunch of legal work and some it seems like a faff. And so sharing knowledge, sharing intelligence, sharing your bloody policy documents is key to making it easy. So that when that little narcissism bug gets to infect your CEO and they want to do something sparkly, the people department say, sure, we can execute that. Instead of, yeah, sounds very interesting, that is terribly complicated, blah, 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 you know? So I think that's the combination. Make it cool, but also make it easy. So what would you advise someone who does want to drive a big change and has a big idea, but doesn't perhaps have people yet that they know are going to be on side with that big idea? What would you advise them to do to drive that change? Speed up with a big policy or a big change within their organization? So campaigning, sales, they're all the same thing. And they are about less ego and more service. It is almost impossible to persuade anyone to change quickly what they care about. Changing their mind, changing what they care about, these are slow incremental processes over the course of years. If you want somebody to do something, you have to reconceptualize it 
as the solution to a problem they already care about. Now, this is key to kind of all politics. You know, Theresa May, for example, said that she cared about the just about managing people. She refused to define who those were. But nevertheless, instantly, we have a policy to help people who are just about managing. They were absolutely right to do that because that's how you engage with people. It's how you do, it's how you do sales. You know, any salesperson will tell you that if you're talking all the time, talking about the greatness of your product, you're failing in the sales conversation. The sales conversation should be about understanding their needs and then explaining how your product helps to meet their needs. And if you can get into that service mindset, how can I help you solve the problem you care about? You can persuade people to do all sorts of things. And so what you have to, like, it might be that whatever your CEO would just want something they can boast about to look good to their mates. It might be that they've got a retention problem. It might be that they have a particular recruitment problem. It might be that they are under pressure around their equal pay gap. And somebody, one of the non-executives on the board, complained about that at the last board meeting. So suddenly there's an opportunity because they're scouting around looking for solutions. And so, so I think you have to, to be a great campaigner, you have to start by being a great listener. And you look for your opportunities, whatever you're pushing, equal parental leave, carers leave, whatever. Wait till there's a problem. Look out for problems and repitch your thing as the solution to problems somebody else is going to care about. That is so much faster than trying to harass somebody into changing what they care about, which triggers, I think, people's sort of like intellectual defense mechanisms really, really quickly. So start by listening. That's my best advice. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Polly. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Bye. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you so much for listening today. If you haven't yet joined any of our free events or fellowship program communities, then do consider signing up to our monthly newsletter where you'll be the first to know when spaces become available. Details on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletters. We also send out a monthly bulletin of top tips um, and fresh insights, new ideas for working parents with ambitious career dreams. At the moment, we have some free events on the website and we have one program left for 2023 for people working in the NHS and one program left for people working in all other sectors. But if you are in the NHS, you only have until 11th July to get your application in. If you work in another sector, you've got a bit more time, you can keep an eye out for applications opening in September. If you do join the fellowship community, you'll join a group of, in my view, really amazing parents who are also very, very passionate about their career. Many of them are podcast listeners. So shout out if you are listening um, and they usually are, well, they're always people who really are passionate about their career. They want to progress. They want to make a difference, but also be present with their kids unapologetically. And the program has been designed by me to enable you to be, I guess, in the driving seat of creating that career um, progression that you want, that I want so that we get more equality um, and also to help you create the family life that you want to give you the courage and tools to do that and um, progress your career while also protecting what's important to you through setting boundaries. 60% of the cohort who completed it last time round said they had got promoted or got more senior responsibility, for example, a board role during the course of the programme, which makes me very happy because 
that's exactly what we need to do to get more equality in the senior leadership tables. And obviously many of them did really well because they did the program with babies on their lap. You can do it anytime between being pregnant or having a child up to the age of about 11. We even have one person who mentioned the word life-changing in the evaluation, which made my heart jump with joy and made me very happy. Any questions on the fellowship programs, just email me or my team. My email address is ferina at leadersplus.org.uk. And I just want to give a shout out to Sam W, who I think I know who you are, but I'm not 100% sure. So, so Sam, I want to, t- to say thank you for being the most recent person to leave a review. Podcasts are incredibly male dominated. Apparently, four in five of the podcast hosts of the top charting podcast are men. But reviews really help to grow the reach of the podcast, to grow the listener base. Also sharing the podcast really helps. And so if you also think it would be quite good if the message in this podcast would reach more people about the fact that we should be able to progress our careers with young kids in tow. And if you think that we should have more female voices in the podcast, which is one of the fastest growing mediums right now worldwide, then you can do a simple thing of just sharing this episode with two or three friends and leaving a review. Thanks again, Sam, for your lovely comments. And thanks to you all for listening and your support. And it would be really nice to see some of you soon at our free events. And I'm sure I'll see the fellows who are listening at our events very soon. Thank you for listening and have a great week.